Michelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. An awesome organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As always, we'll start things off with a discussion of the biggest drug news from the last week, a couple of quick hit headlines, and a forecast of upcoming events in the weeks ahead. Then, it's time for the third installment of November's Drug of the Month, where we'll be going over the history of dextromethorphan, also known as DXM. Finally, for our roundtable discussion, we'll be discussing drug policy reform in Ireland with Graham DeBara of Help Not Harm. And of course, we'll wrap things up with our call to action, because while educating ourselves about drugs is important, it's not as important as using that knowledge to improve our communities and make the world a better place. So thanks for joining us for episode 71 of This Week in Drugs. And now it's time for our weekly news and forecast, where Sam and I bring you the biggest headlines and news from the world of drugs and drug policy, and then we give you a forecast of some big events uh, to look forward to in the weeks ahead. Sam, you want to take it away with the first uh, news story this week? Absolutely. So this is one we've reported on a few times before about the efforts by the mayor of Ithaca, New York, to create America's first supervised injection facility. Uh, That effort has gotten another boost, as this week Ruth Dreyfus, who is the former president of Switzerland and is now a member of the Global Commission on Drug Policy, she just visited Ithaca to speak in favor of the plan and explain the experience with such facilities in Switzerland. Among many other things, she made a a long speech, but one of the quotes that I liked the most was uh, that she said, you know, that there will be no syringes lying around, that the people are in a more or less structured life and not always just chasing after the substance and being themselves chased by the police and by the dealers. So having a safe place is really the only way, I would say, to reintegrate into society uh, these people, and it's not promoting consumption. It's just taking conscience that there are consumers out there, that there are consumers and that they need to have a life where they can think about something other than drugs, and this is the first step to change that life, end quote. Um, So I was paraphrasing a tiny bit there because she's uh, not a a native English speaker and and had some kind of weird grammatical things in there. But I really like the sentiment that uh, that this is really a harm reduction philosophy and that it isn't uh, something in which, you know, we're promoting drug use or anything like that. That is just giving these people who are addicted to drugs a, a safe place to use so that they can have more dignity and then be able to recover. Um, And I particularly liked how she said not just being chased by the police, but also the dealers, which is something that honestly I don't think about as much for, say, someone, especially someone who's, say, homeless and living on the streets uh, of in that sort of environment that dealers can be quite uh, kind of omnipresent and, yeah, threatening (laughs) in that area. Um, And it's really not just the police that you're looking out for. 
And uh, so, yeah, Rochelle, I mean, this is something we've talked about a lot. Do you think um, there's really any uh, do, you, do you think having her involved and having this endorsement is going to do anything to move this forward? Or is there any chance that it actually passing? Yeah, I think it's really powerful to have someone, um, a political leader from a country that has had experience with um, facilities like this. Uh, I think the Swiss heroin clinics were probably one of the leaders in this realm as far as providing a safe space for mm -hmm. uh, intravenous drug users to consume their substances. And and you're absolutely right. It's such an, an enlightened position in many ways um, for her to acknowledge that there are functional drug users, even those who may be struggling mm -hmm. with addiction. Um, and I think it's so telling that in the like formal medical diagnosis for addiction, one of the factors is how much time you spend thinking about mm -hmm. and trying to obtain the substance you're struggling with. Um, mm -hmm. And having these safe facilities remove a lot of those obstacles. Um, you know, someone who may need um, either physically or psychologically uh, to consume, say, heroin once a day or mm -hmm. something like that, you know, um, maybe spending every hour of every single day in a prohibition state trying to find that bit of heroin or somewhere safe to use it. Whereas if you have safe injection facilities, they can get it out of, way, out of the way at the beginning of their day and continue mm -hmm. living the rest of the, their life. Like this image that we have of drug addicts being completely like useless and non-productive members of society is itself a result of prohibition. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a character flaw of the person who's struggling with it. Right. Yeah. The folks that we're most exposed to that are, you know, the ones who are arrested and covered in the media are typically the very fringes, the people who have the worst problems with it. And we kind of then assume that everyone does. But there are many, you know, functional uh, drug users out there. And this is helpful for, for all of them. And and we are up on our time, but I did just want to include one last little thing that I really loved about this. Um, so in her speech, she, she also went on to say, aside from supervised injection facilities, um, that in Copenhagen, there are lawyers on bicycles where they have coffee, cookies, and law books. They go out and meet people on the street and tell them their rights, which I thought was uh. just the most amazing thing ever in terms of we always... I typically try to shy away from the like fetishizing of Switzerland and Scandinavia of these like perfect countries, but that sounds like an amazing government program. Yeah, that's like actually the exact kind of lawyer I want to be. So thank you for... <laughs> uh, you know, pioneering that model, Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. So moving on to our next story, back here in the United States, uh, we reported back in September that the city council in Nashville, Tennessee, had just voted to pass a local decriminalization measure that would give local police officers the option of issuing a civil citation of $50 for a half ounce or less of marijuana in lieu of arresting or otherwise criminally penalizing people they found in possession. So Memphis, Tennessee was set to vote on a similar measure um, in October as well and has indeed passed their own ordinance. But and this was particularly newsworthy at the time because both local measures were backed by the state legislative back black caucus. But now the state attorney general has issued an opinion that the local measures are unenforceable unenforceable because state law preempts local law hmm. um so i have a couple of thoughts about why um sorry i'm sorry tyler you're gonna have to bleep this out but basically mm -hmm. this is bullshit. Mm -hmm. um i disagree obviously with the attorney general's opinion about why this is a clear-cut preemption case and also about 
the weight of the opinion on how the cities should go forward. Do you have any initial mm-hmm. thoughts, Sam, before I get into like really wonky stuff about why I don't think this is right? Yeah. So, I mean, I was just going to say as a non-lawyer, uh, my opinion or, or understanding of this has always essentially been that, you know, that the police themselves do have the ability to still enforce state law. I mean, a city police officer is able to do that. So there isn't really a way, I I, I think, to force them to do these things. But at the same time, a police officer is a very normal thing to have police discretion of of essentially issuing a warning, um, even when it's criminalized. Like, that's not uncommon for a police officer, whether it's speeding or or anything, really, or, or having possession of marijuana saying, like, okay, I'll confiscate it, throw it out, this is a warning. And so you can't really, since they already have the ability to not enforce certain laws if they want to, it seems like there isn't really a way to force them to do so. But... Let's get wonky with right. it. What's all the details? Yeah, here? no, I, I think that's that's absolutely the basis of my of my first argument is that um, not not only do police officers have broad authority to decide um, or discretion to decide what to do in specific cases, but local law enforcement agencies generally have broad authority to set their own infi- enforcement priorities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Even though the state may have an argument that this new civil fine that was created by Memphis and Nashville, that the civil fine itself um, can't exist, like that they can't write tickets Mm. for this. Mm -hmm. Um, If the cities really wanted to uphold the principles behind the decriminalization, they could instead do like a lowest law enforcement priority type measure, Mm -hmm. which is just tell their beat cops you know, if you see someone with marijuana and there's someone speeding down the road doing something else, the guy speeding down the road has to be your priority over the marijuana. Like mm-hmm. marijuana must absolutely be your lowest law enforcement priority. And this isn't a completely novel idea. Like many cities across the country who have been unable to pass more, um, more dramatic marijuana reform measures mm-hmm. have adopted uh, lowest law enforcement priorities. So it's exactly like you said, Sam, like the state can't come in and like, um, you know, follow each cop around and make sure that they're mm-hmm. arresting people that they think they should. Um, right. When it comes down to the legal question, um, the question really is whether the civil fines are an additional regulation on top of the state uh, law or if it's a regulation in opposition to state law. So if it if it mm. directly contradicts state law, um, and this is where the attorney general and I disagree. You know, he's an actual licensed attorney who's been practicing for many years, so I'm sure he has more knowledge of this than I do. But this is very close to the question we ask at a state level too: whether state marijuana laws um, create an additional regulatory system for marijuana or Mm -hmm. if it's in direct conflict with the Federal Controlled Substances Act. I guess my one thought here, too, would be kind of in parallel with the with the state federal thing that, you know, you can't have a state government that legalizes marijuana. Um, They're not going to be arresting anyone for it. But in theory, at least the federal government could still come in and make those arrests because it's breaking federal law. I wonder if under this, essentially, if somebody, you know, got a ticket for fifty dollars if that is evidence enough of them breaking state law for state prosecutors to just come in and start charging them anyway. But so it seems maybe that having a small fine instead of no fine might open that up more, but but might actually be riskier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, The, 
other thing that I wanted to know, again, I know that we're over time already <laughs> for this story, but um, the other thing I wanted to note, especially because of the context in which these laws were passed with the support of the Black Legislative Caucus, um, within hours of the opinion being issued, Memphis, which is a city that's 63% black, uh, completely halted issuing citations. And meanwhile, Nashville, which is a city that's 78% white, have continued uh, issuing the citations in mm. defiance of the AG's opinion. So I think it's really interesting to look at the dynamics of authority here. Mm -hmm. um, and we can talk about this further. I mean, there's so much to talk to unpack here, but I just thought that that contrast was interesting to note. Absolutely. And, and speaking of weird enforcement priorities and things not having their uh, a, a lot of their intended consequences uh, for our next story here is actually about Afghanistan. And so new data from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime reports that opium poppy cultivation in Afghanistan rose 10 percent in 2016, reaching a total of about 500,000 acres, which is 781 square miles. So while this may be contrary to what you'd assume, since that, you know, that it would be difficult to grow legal drugs in a country effectively still under martial law, uh, it makes a lot of sense in, in another way because security forces, you know, have bigger problems to deal with than nonviolent drug farmers. So the lack of stability inside of the country leads to local powers with the Taliban still controlling huge areas, protecting poppy cultivation within them as a revenue stream. Mm. And of course, farmers are also keen to protect their crops with the government in such disarray it's easier for them to you know either pay somebody off or fight back physically against someone who'd be trying to destroy them and the same report actually says that afghanistan accounts for about 75 percent of the world's acreage for poppy plants and 90 percent of the world's heroin production so i don't know if that means that more of their poppy plants are spent towards heroin or for they're more efficient than other people at, at making that conversion but this so is this just is in mm -hmm. oh i was gonna say this is interesting i don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head and i should have double checked this before we recorded but i was under the impression from when we did our heroin drug of the month segments that uh production had actually reached an all-time low in afghanistan following uh the taliban's takeover or control of the country because of very strict like or like the very strict tenets of Islamic law, which prohibited drug consumption. Hmm. So maybe it's bounced back since then, or my understanding here of the dynamic, and maybe we should have a whole discussion about this on a future episode to bring in some some serious experts. Because as I've yeah, said many times, like domestically about. is is really my focus rather than international uh -huh. stuff. But that the Taliban essentially, you know, has their own policies against drug consumption. But I think. Um, their need for money is so great that effectively they're like selling it to other people is fine, just not using it yourself. So kind mm. of the idea of, of of taking the benefits without, um, you know, the moral lapse in, in using drugs. But this is really part of, I, I think, the, you know, the larger idea of blowback and side effects from military actions that obviously there's so much other, uh, so many other issues in here um, aside from drug policy. But I wonder... Um, if this, the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan actually, in a sense, made growing easier um, and had any role in fueling the current heroin epidemic. Um, there's because obviously so the... many factors at play, but you really can't help but wonder. Um, do you mean that in, because of the destabilization of the government and there not being like a centralized um, enforcement agent to like push back mm -hmm. on this? Yeah. 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 
And I mean, so much more of it has to do with, of course, the demand side than the supply side. And so making it easier to grow poppies, probably uh, the, the opium e overdose epidemic would probably still be going on even without uh, with, with this easier growing. But I, I can't imagine that it didn't play at least a small part. Yeah, it would definitely be interesting to have a discussion on global drug dynamics. Um, if anyone out there has friends who are experts in this area, please send them our way. So moving on to the next news story, um, again here in the United States. So this is not an entirely new news story um, because it actually happened back in July, but it didn't come to my attention until this past week, and I do think it's worth talking about because we very rarely um, discuss cases of confidential informants, and that is, um, in my opinion, one of the more dangerous and reckless parts of the drug war. So I wanted to take this opportunity to bring it up again. Um, so the story is that Lance Block, who was the attorney for Rachel Hoffman, um, and Rachel Hoffman was an SSDP student in Florida. So just for some background, Rachel Hoffman was an SSDP student in Florida who was busted for a small amount of MDMA in exchange for um, potentially a lighter sentence and very likely under the pres under pressure from the police, she agreed to act as a CI or confidential informant and assist law enforcement in making drug busts. During one of these buys, the police lost track of her, broke communication, and she was later found murdered, likely by the people the cops were um, setting up setting her up to buy from. So that was back in 2008. Mm -hmm. A similar incident occurred in 2014 with a student in North Dakota named Andrew Sadek. Andrew was busted for about $80 worth of marijuana, uh, again, enlisted as a CI, and on his first sting operation, police again lost contact with him, and he went missing for two months. Uh, two months later, his body was found in a river with a bullet shot through his head and a backpack full of rocks tied to his waist. Um, an internal investigation was uh, found to be inconclusive, and law enforcement agencies argued that it could still possibly be a case of suicide, which... <laughs> Seems unlikely. Right. <laughs> right. So Lance Block, back to, you know, this news story. Lance Block was the attorney for both Rachel and Andrew's families in lawsuits against the police departments that enlisted them. Um, he did also help pass Rachel's law in Florida, which created some more accountability me measures for law enforcement agencies. But what happened in June this past year, which was the exact, which was the same month that the Sedek family filed their lawsuit against the local law enforcement department, uh, Lance Block himself was arrested for buying cocaine from a confidential informant um, mm. in Florida. Mm -hmm. So, so he's no longer able to work on that case. And some people close to the Sedek family believe that cops may have deliberately targeted Block, who was known. Um, for having a history of addiction and recovery um, for a fake drug deal to prevent him from working on his CI cases. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, this is really unfortunate just because this is such a important issue that, as, as you mentioned, SSDP has been working on for so long, and especially with young people, but just the whole concept of using confidential informants for drug cases has so many problems that it's just kind of rotten at the core. Um, and so to have an advocate like this uh, essentially taken out of play is, is really too bad. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the major piece, I know this was like a lot of background information and not like a ton of new news, um, but what's surprising to me is how little accountability and process there is for police departments who are using CIs. I mean, Rachel's law was passed um, 
creating some of these checks and balances, but it's really like um, agencies have to provide special training for officers who recruit confidential informants, which is like mind blowing that they're not already receiving training for mm-hmm. that when they when they recruit civilians like basically under duress to get mm-hmm. into these really dangerous situations with like known drug dealers who are likely armed, mm-hmm. you know, and these are these are kids. These are like students who are like smoking joints in their like dorm rooms who are being put in a situation where they may be murdered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really um, is just treating them as totally expendable and, and putting their lives on the line instead of a police officer. Um, I guess partly with the idea of that police lives are more valuable somehow. Absolutely. So um, this is something I, I tried to look for more updated information to see what had happened to Lance Block since July. Um, nothing, new, nothing new has come up yet, but this is definitely an area I'd like to keep an eye on. Absolutely. And so finally, then moving down into our quick hit headlines, our first one is that opponents of marijuana legalization in Maine have gathered enough signatures to qualify for a recount. But with the previous count showing question one with over 4,000 more votes than no, it's very unlikely that this will end up changing the result. An internal report by the Canadian Justice Department concluded that the decriminalization of all drugs may be a healthier and more cost-effective approach to drug policy uh, than the current prohibition model. The study found that alternatives to criminalization could result in lower rates of use and fewer, fewer harms such as addiction, overdoses, and infectious diseases. In Minnesota, two candidates running for the U.S. House of Representatives as part of the Legal Marijuana Now Party got over 5% of the vote, which gives them major party status for the next election. And we want to say thank you to Twid listener Gunner for sending this our way. And it's been a good week for drug policy in the Commonwealth. Uh, The British Medical Journal has also called for the legalization of all drugs. So according to the journal, prohibition laws have failed to curb either supply or demand, reduce addiction, cut violence, or reduce profits for organized crime. The journal editors urge medical professionals to be on the forefront of this issue in order to drive science and evidence-based alternatives that emphasize health and the respect of people's dignity. And finally, then moving into our weekly forecast, uh, mine is that those interested in attending the Psychedelic Science Conference in Oakland this coming April have the opportunity to reduce their ticket prices by becoming a volunteer. They have two opportunities. Uh, The first is called Work Trade, where people can get a $300 discount on registration if they volunteer for a total of 12 hours. And then there's also being a lead volunteer, which requires more work but gets you a completely free registration. Uh, These are really highly sought after, um, and so if you want to participate, you do need to fill out an application, uh, which of course we'll have a link to on our website, and the deadline for this is December 18th. So my forecast is kind of a call to action as well. So as the next president begins his transition period into the White House, it's also time for us activists to start preparing for the 2017 state legislative sessions. Uh, Most of those sessions, you're going to want to double check what the dates are in your state, but most legislative sessions do begin in January. And so uh, now is the time to start reaching out to your local elected officials and introduce yourselves and make yourself known as both an activist and a resource for them. So... Um, email works Email works, but phone calls are better and an in-person visit to their district office if you have the time and you can swing it is probably the best approach um, you don't have to 
push them hard on adopting any policy positions uh, right now before the session even begins, but definitely introduce yourself as a concerned citizen. Tell them what your priorities will be in the upcoming session, whether that's medical marijuana, syringe exchange, medical amnesty, or whatever. Leave them some literature to educate themselves and start thinking about um, and have them start thinking about your issues so that they know that if they have any questions about what they're reading, they can contact you as a resource. And that way, when you come back during the legislative session to, um, you know, urge them to pass specific policy positions, they'll already be somewhat familiar, know who you are and take your opinion more seriously. Um, there's so many resources online, especially for civic engagement right now. I'm going to leave a link to a pretty simple spreadsheet that some excellent human on the internet has created. Um, it is specifically targeted towards progressive issues in Congress, but can be easily adapted to drug policy issues and uh, used for phone calls to state legislators. All right. So that is our entire weekly news and forecast for this week. As always, there's so much going on, especially uh, post-election as everything new is lining up and a lot of new bills are going to be introduced soon. Um, so please, if you see anything really interesting, send it to us this week in drugs at gmail.com. Or you can also send it to us on Facebook or Twitter. And of course, as we always say, uh, the forecast stuff is also uh, the most important for you to send to us just because we would love to focus on any of your events that you've got coming up. So feel free to send the, us those to us and uh, we'll see you next week. We don't have a paid sponsor this week, but if we did, this is where their commercial would be. Are you listening to this right now? Do you have a cool business, political campaign, website, pet cause, or literal pet that you want us to tell our hundreds of passionate listeners about? Then you're in luck. For a small fee to help cover our costs, you can get your very own 30-second ad that would go right here, be read by me, and be listened to by everyone who's hearing me say all of this right now. So if that sounds good to you, swing on over to thisweekindrugs.org and click on the sponsor button at the top to learn more. Now, back to the show. And now it's time for the drug of the month, where we take a closer look at a different drug each month. For November, we've been learning more about dextromethorphan, also known as DXM or Robitussin. Last week, Sam talked about the science behind DXM and how it interacts with the human body. On today's episode, I'll be discussing the history of DXM, the origins of its use, and how attitudes towards it have changed over time. As I mentioned in the intro episode, DXM was first synthesized in a lab in 1954 as part of government-funded research to replace codeine with a less addictive alternative. It was approved in 1958 by the FDA as a cough suppressant and made available for over-the-counter sales. Initially, DXM was sold in tablets under the brand name Romilar. As early as 1962, recreational use of DXM was reported in pop cultural writings and was apparently particularly popular among beat writers such as uh, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, and Peter Orlovsky. The beats were so well known for their use of Romilar, uh, especially during their time in Ibiza, that they were known amongst locals as the Romilar Army. 
1967, the first case of toxic psychosis induced by an overdose of Romilar was reported. The case report states, quote, A 23-year-old male, a well-known drug addict, recently presented with a toxic psychosis due to taking 20 tablets of Romilar, in parentheses, dextromethorphan, which he bought from a chemist. This was characterized by hyperactive behavior, extreme pressure of thought, marked visual and auditory hallucinations, and association of sounds with colors, in parentheses, synesthesia. This experience was likened to that experienced when he was under the influence of LSD. End quote. By the late 1960s, recreational use or abuse of DXM had, re had reached such levels that manufacturers began including ingredients in their cough medicines solely designed to induce nausea in order to discourage overconsumption. As one writer described it, while drinking a bottle became a stomach-churning adventure, the psychedelic trip was undiminished. In 1973, Romilar DXM tablets were removed from the market altogether. However, DXM continued to be available in cough syrups, with manufacturers developing even more formulations designed to deter abuse, uh, especially by ensuring the syrups were unpleasant enough to consume in large quantities due to their foul medicinal taste. Within a few short years, however, the call of the market demands was too strong, and those same manufacturers began releasing formulas with some appealing flavoring. This led at least one researcher in 1975 to, su to suggest that the cycle of recreational abuse may be repeated. While the potential for abuse of DXM was already well established in 1970, when the Controlled Substances Act was originally passed by Congress and signed into law by Nixon, dextromethorphan was specifically excluded from being scheduled under Section 201 G2. To my knowledge, dextromethorphan is the only substance that is explicitly named in the Controlled Substances Act in order to not be included. Section 201 G1, which immediately precedes it, states that the, general, the Attorney General shall, by regulation, exclude any non-narcotic drug which contains a controlled substance from the application of this chapter and subchapter 2 of this chapter, if such drug may, under the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, be lawfully sold over the counter without a prescription. So this basically outlines two requirements for being exempted um, under those previous subchapters, both being a, a non-narcotic drug and a uh, being sold over the counter. Narcotic drug is then defined as opium opiates and its derivatives, poppy straw, and coca leaves, cocaine, and their derivatives. Therefore, dextromethorphan did not fit the definition of either a narcotic drug, and it was also approved by the FDA for non-prescription over-the-counter sales. It's unclear based on the legislative history why DXM was specifically exempted when many substances with similar chemical structures and psychoactive effects have been scheduled, even in Schedule 1 or 2, but it appears to come down to either the government's conviction that DXM has a very low potential for abuse despite uh, recorded history or the influence of Big Pharma. At a minimum, dextromethorphan is regulated as an over-the-counter Category 1 substance, which means it's generally recognized as safe and effective. In contrast to the Controlled Substances Act, which we talk a lot about a lot more on the show, over-the-counter regulations apply to over 800 active ingredients, including acne and weight loss products. 
In the 1980s, with the backlash against the drug culture of the 60s and the 70s and the accompanying war on drugs ushered in by the Reagan era, psychedelics became generally less available, especially in rural areas and small towns. DXM, which was still easily available over-the-counter in any drugstore, saw renewed popularity within the counterculture, especially among the hardcore punk community. One writer speculates that its widespread popularity within the hardcore scene may be related to a brief mention in the seminal countercultural guide, The Anarchist Cookbook. People within the subculture would use DXM primarily in group environments, in people's homes, or in the warehouses where many of them lived. Often, a theme was chosen for the DXM trip, although the term vacation was sometimes referred to trip. Themes included locations, historic times, fantasy environments, emotions, and abstract concepts. DXM was almost never a solitary activity. In contrast, many DXM users today regard it as a solo experience. The recreational use of DXM within the scene diminished as the hardcore punk community itself began to dwindle. In the 1990s, with the advent of widespread internet access, recreational use of DXM re-emerged into the mainstream. As early as 1996, DXM hydrobromide powder could be purchased in bulk from online retailers, allowing users to consume DXM uh, without the syrup preparations. As Sam mentioned in last week's episode, while DXM is not available for purchase in its powder form in American stores, it is still easily available online through such websites as Alibaba, which is like the Chinese Amazon. The rapid rise of recreational DXM use, enabled by internet chat rooms and drug use forums, prompted the DEA to convene two drug abuse advisory committee meetings in the 1990s. The first, in 1990, was prompted by concerned citizen petitions from Pennsylvania and Utah. The objectives for the 1990 meeting were to 1. Help the FDA identify and better define the extent of the problem, 2. Develop a strategy for assessing the problem, and 3. Identify and discuss the pros and cons of possible solutions. The committee concluded that more data would be needed, specifically regarding toxicity and higher dose ranges. They agreed to follow up in the next six months or whenever appropriate. Two years later, which made me laugh because that's a lot longer than six months later, but in 1992, the advisory committee reconvened. The meeting concluded once again with no clear consensus on the extent of the problem or what action should be taken to control to control it, and there was only a proposal for a vague idea that more studies would be needed to focus attention on the specific geographic regions where outbreaks of DXM use were occurring. More recently, in 2005, five male teenagers between the age of 17 and 19 in three separate incidents in Washington State, Florida, and Virginia died following ingestion of DXM. In four out of the five cases, the individuals tested positive for other drugs, in particular cannabinoids and diphenhydramine, which is the active ingredient in Benadryl. All five overdose victims had obtained the DXM from the same company, Chemical API, which is a chemical resale company based in Indianapolis that purchased the powdered DXM from India and repackaged the substance and resold it over the internet. This leads me personally, based on this common pattern, to suspect that the deaths may have been related to the purity of the product sold by this company, but I also assume that an issue like that would have shown up in drug tests if that's something that uh, autopsies were looking out for. So I'm not sure. 
In the Florida case report, one male youth did ingest the same amount of DXM and diphenhydramine as his two friends who did fatally overdose, but in his case, he survived. It is likely that he survived because he actually became ill and vomited immediately after the ingestion. In addition, the survivor weighed about 70 pounds more than his friends who did not survive. In conclusion, DXM's history of use as a recreational drug is as long as the existence of the substance itself. Despite widespread knowledge of this, the government has deemed DXM sufficiently safe and unlikely to lead to abuse that it is available over-the-counter. And while a number of fatal overdoses may have occurred as recently as 2005, this doesn't appear to be a regular or even likely occurrence over decades of close scrutiny. So that's all for this week's segment of Drug of the Month, where we went over the history of dextromethorphan and how society's attitudes towards it have changed over time. Next week, Sam will be back with some recent news and trends. Now it's time for a roundtable discussion, where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we'll be discussing drug policy in Ireland and some other current events with Graham DeBara, the director of reform organization Help Not Harm, and also a former board member of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Thanks so much for coming on, Graham. Hi, Sam and Rochelle. Thank you very much for having me on the show. And uh, so to start things off, I mean, you're actually uh, Skyping into us from the Marijuana Business Daily Conference um, out in Vegas. And so um, could you tell us a little bit about both how you got into drug policy reform and, and what you're up to nowadays? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I'm calling in from Las Vegas. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm attending any of the events here. <laughs> it just happened to be uh, I'm, I'm on a tour around the west of the United States at the moment for the past three weeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to basically delve into like some of the developments that were happening here in relation to the ballot initiatives in Nevada and California. So I've spent mm -hmm. some time traveling around um, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, uh, Santa Cruz, L.A. and uh, Las Vegas as well. It just happened to be the case that um, I was talking to my friend Chris Wallace a couple of days ago. And uh, he said he was in Las Vegas and um, the flight from L.A. is you know 45 minutes so it seemed that there were a lot of uh, a lot of interesting figures here that i that i was already scheduling to meet in their mm -hmm. hometown so it was it was very convenient that I'm, I'm actually only here not for the conference but actually just because everybody in the marijuana industry is here and there's a couple of people that i came to meet so um my time here has been well spent uh, i've met a lot of connections made, made made a lot of friends i've spoken to hundreds of people about the cause that I represent, uh, and that's uh, the non-profit Help Not Harm uh, campaign, which is a, a non-profit in Ireland, where we have been basically advocating for the legalization of medical cannabis for the past uh, 13 or 14 months. Uh, so yeah, the reception has been very positive, and it's been a, a very good trip so far. And so as an overview, since most of our listeners are from the United States and may not be familiar with Ireland's politics and uh, the legal or political landscape out there, what, what does that look like? Who are the major parties? And in particular, I understand the Catholic Church has traditionally had a very strong influence in social issues. Um, how has that shaped the conversation in Ireland around cannabis uh, or broader drug policy reform? 
Yeah, so as you rightly uh, commented on there, there is definitely a, a level of conservatism uh, within Irish, the Irish political landscape here. Um, that's not to say that we haven't been able to kind of manoeuvre or message, uh, you know, in with uh, the kind of ideals or values that a lot of people hold true, whether they're, you know, practising uh, Catholics or part of the Conservative Party, that's Fine Gael. So Fine Gael um, are the ruling party here by majority. And uh, yeah, they'd be kind of very, very right wing. And so it's shaped like over the last seven years that I've been involved with uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy and uh, and Help Not Harm. It's definitely shaped like, and I've learned a lot in terms of how you adjust or frame your argument. And I think that's for me is actually the most important part of a campaign. It's It's not so much like the evidence or the facts or the research, but it's how, who is your audience and how are you pitching it to them? And the way we've done that is we've kind of uh, shifted our message towards a very kind of um, a very kind of uh, you know message that's rooted in compassion and love. So, like when we talk about medical cannabis, for example, it, despite who our audience is, when you bring it down to a human level uh, and you bring in values that everybody share, which is you know protecting family, protecting friends, promoting health amongst people that you love. Uh, you know, the cannabis medical campaign fits nicely in with that because we learned a lot of lessons from the Yes Equality campaign, which in my opinion is mm -hmm. the best campaign I've ever seen, which legalized gay marriage here in Ireland uh, by popular vote uh, two years ago. And so there's a very, very good like slogan or kind of, um, kind of campaign of flyers that they had. And it, it, all it said was just, my mother and then another one said my father and another one said my son and another one said my uncle or whatever um and so the idea is basically bringing it away from the abstract like figures facts like cost savings you know science which all of these are valid and true but you know being part of the one percent of the global population that goes to third that has, that has been lucky enough to go to third level education we can't assume that evidence is going to win uh, this campaign or this argument. So we go back mm -hmm. to what really matters, and that's family, that's friends, that's health. Um, and so those are the kind of ideas that we've tapped into. Now, you know, the Fine Gael Party, they've definitely, you know, kicked the can down the road for many years on this issue, but it, it's really been instigated recently by a patient in our network called Vera Toomey. Uh, Vera is a mother, and she has a six-year-old daughter with mm -hmm. uh, Dravet syndrome, a rare form of epilepsy. Mm -hmm. Mm. And uh, this this child suffers about 20 seizures a day, and she's been promised uh, all sorts of things by the Minister of Health, uh, who is from the Fine Gael Party. Um, and yeah, I think a, a lot has really motivated a recent change. Uh, one of those events has basically been the Global Medical Cannabis Summit that we ran in September. Uh, we had a number of uh, leading figures worldwide at this conference, including the German government, um, and a lot of people from the US as well. And um, that really kind of kicked off the conversation. We had about 30% of the Irish population either saw it or heard it on radio or read about it in an article. So it was very, oh, it was wow. very yeah, it was very successful. So about 4.5 million people, there was about a million, 1.5 million people that, um, that, that, that basically became aware of this mm -hmm. campaign. So it really helped someone like Vera, you know, who became very confident after this and, um, she basically became more and more brave. And so she decided one day after another empty promise by some politician that she would walk from her home in the countryside of Cork in the south 
to the Irish Parliament, which is about 500 kilometers away. Um, so she made it 33 kilometers and she was surrounded by media, by families, by the community. People were, uh, hotels were offering her free accommodation. Restaurants were offering her mm. free food. Uh, and sure enough, the assistant of the Minister of Health called her within 33 kilometers and uh, mm-hmm. begged that she calls off the protest and mm-hmm. that uh, they, meet, they meet in the parliament uh, a week later. So that was about two weeks ago. And so since then, the Minister of... Oh, wow, that's so recent. I didn't realize that it was all happening like in the past few weeks. Yeah, things move really fast in this world, you know. Uh, a week feels like a year, and a month feels mm-hmm. like a decade. So, um, yeah, when I speak of these developments, these are very recent developments. And, uh, you know, I'm excited, but it's hard to even, like, take a, take a moment to compose myself. I mean, we've been given a date, basically, as a result of that meeting uh, between Vera and the Minister of Health. He now supports the legalisation of medical cannabis. The Health Committee of the Irish Parliament supports the legalisation of medical cannabis. Oh, wow. four, four out of about seven political parties support the legalization of medical cannabis. So, yeah, we're about 60% there. Um, and we've been given a date, the 16th of December, uh, there's a bill that we helped co-author uh, with another political party uh, in June, which was submitted. And um, we were not sure at all at any time how strong this would be received. And now out of nowhere, we were given a date of the 16th of December and support from all these like key stakeholders in Parliament. Um, so it's like, it's really, really a tremendous time uh, for the country. And it's something I'm very proud of. So what's happening? So what's happening on December 16th, which is that's like a month from today, the day we're recording, um, is going to have a hearing in Parliament or a vote? What's going on then? So it, it's going to go to vote. So there's a bill okay. wow. that would legalize medical cannabis uh, mm-hmm. through doctor's recommendation. Um, it's restricted in some senses, but also it doesn't go into too much either. So at, at least it will end the criminalization of people who want to use cannabis for medical reasons. Um, while it might be a restrictive model, it's certainly better than what we have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know. I don't know exactly how this regulation will pan out because all I did was write uh, or help write the first piece of legislation, and so now, as it gets proposed into Parliament, there's 166 uh, par- parliamentarians, and mm-hmm. so they each will get to vote and comment or make amendments to this bill. So you know, at the worst, they're going to butcher it, but it will pass mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it seems to be very popular, at least as a topic. Um, and at the best, it, it will pass the way it is, which uh, would be extremely positive. I think either outcome really will help people like Vera, will help families and parents uh, who have children with, with uh, you know, things like Gervais syndrome or MS or multiple sclerosis, um, motor neuron, whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's really it's aimed at these cases, at these specific um, cases. So it's definitely a first uh, step towards larger reform. Like we're not going to stop now. But when this goes to vote, you will be sure that we'll be outside the parliament watching a live feed on a big screen mm-hmm. and we'll be giving our reaction as a democracy to each expression, each comment, each amendment. And this will allow accountability for every single politician that we'll know where they stand. And if they don't stand with the people, if they don't stand with the patients, then why are they in parliament? Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, this is incredible to see how much progress you've been making on this just in the in the past few months of, I mean, in a, in a country the size of Ireland, I mean, we had talked about this a bit earlier, but a, a, of how much direct outreach you can do and, and how quickly things can move along. So that, that has been incredible and we'll definitely be keeping up to date on the, the news segment of uh, what goes on at that December 16th hearing and uh, hopefully comes out in a positive vote. And so... Medical cannabis obviously is one of the the major topics of debate in Ireland, as you as you have explained. But what are some of the other major drug policy areas that are really part of the national debate right now? Um, the main ones I'm wondering about is is there an opiate crisis like we're facing in the United States and in some other countries as well, um, or is that less less of an issue there? And I know. So obviously, Ireland not having medical cannabis, um, a lot of your drug policies are, I assume, quite restrictive. And how exactly bad are uh, the arrests for drugs? Is it actually um, is there any kind of I imagine no U.S. style mass incarceration, but is the actual punitive side of drug policy uh, quite harmful there as well? Yeah, so um, in the wider perspective on drug policy in Ireland, there are definitely similarities between ourselves and any other country, and that's the problem of mass criminalization, specifically aimed at young people. So Ireland has a higher rate of arrests compared to the UK. Uh, while we are a smaller population, there's around 42 arrests every day, um, but that's a higher rate per capita than compared to the UK. So yeah, it's definitely a, big, a major problem. The average, okay, this is gonna this is gonna shock uh, you and your listeners. The mm-hmm. average value of a cannabis uh, conviction, so how much people possess, is ten euro. Oh 10 wow! Euro is the average. These are value. people getting busted and convicted for what I assume yes. is what maybe a gram or something like that. No, no less. A gram is valued at twenty five euro here. Mm-hmm. So you're talking oh, wow. about point mm-hmm. two five of a gram. Oh. You're talking about a roach mm-hmm. you're talking about wow. the end of a bag you're talking about a crumb on the floor like mm-hmm. people are being convicted for minuscule amounts of cannabis mm-hmm. um and that's just when i talk about cannabis you know there are, you know the, the, obviously you you know you mentioned opiate as well yes there is a major homelessness uh, crisis in dublin at the moment mm. um this i don't know what what's causing it uh, there's a rise of of, of, of uh, house prices i suppose it, it rent rents have gone through the roof like um i was going to move to dublin myself but it just it, i actually found a comparison it's cheaper to live in san francisco than it is to live in dublin um which oh, is wow. crazy mm-hmm. and um so yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, kind of social issues at the moment at play and not to say that those are the direct cause of opiate use. There could be many reasons why someone decides to uh, to uh, to consume, but certainly uh, this kind of um, this kind of arrest rate is aimed like naturally towards people that are more exposed, people that are living on the streets, people that are you know possessing in public as opposed to in a private dwelling. So there is this class issue, whereas in the U.S. it seems to be a multitude of class, race, sex. Um, and gender and sexuality, whereas here it, it's mostly a class issue. Um, and that's one of the areas that we've been addressing over the past like 24 months. So with the last Minister of Drugs, Aon Oriordan, we worked closely with him to develop a strategy for decriminalization and for the opening of the first um, ever 
medically supervised injection facility in Ireland that's like a drug consumption room but specifically mm-hmm. for injection um, and so the main um, I suppose tenet to that reform is interestingly heroin would be the first drug that would be decriminalized in Ireland mm. um, because mm. to open one wow. of these to open one of these facilities, um, the part, they're worried that the police will just wait outside the building for people that will come out with their heroin, you know? So they mm-hmm. have to actually criminalize the personal possession of opiates uh, first. So that's yeah. that's really interesting. And it's, it's something like, uh, you know, it's very hard to, to place a priority of issues. I definitely think medical cannabis is a major priority. I definitely think... Uh, opening a medically supervised injection facility are, is a major priority. I think taking those two together, um, I'm like I'm really happy that those are the first two things uh, to change, because uh, yeah, like that, that's definitely the most affected population currently under the the legislation in Ireland that criminalises people who use drugs. But you know, there's going to be many more uh, areas that we're going to be looking into. Another thing that we do is uh, drug welfare at music festivals. So like you, the way you guys have like Dance Safe and probably a lot of other uh, services, we started the first ever drug welfare at an Irish music festival. It's the largest one. It's called Electric Picnic. Uh, it happened mm-hmm. in September of this year. And uh, so what that entails is basically just providing the police and medics with an additional service for people that are consuming drugs or people that are coming down from uh, you know, their, their, their trip and people that want a place to crash or want some advice or want some help. So that's another kind of like harm reduction service that we do. Um, it's not so much of a policy because um, you know, I know in the US a big thing is the whole Good Samaritans um, initiatives where it seems that there are like problems if, 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 if people are caught in, in, in places where there's overdoses or places where people are consuming drugs or emergencies mm-hmm. and stuff. Thankfully, that's not an issue here. So, um, you know, the, the biggest thing for us is like just getting insurance for one of these tents. But there's no criminal uh, li- there's no criminal liability or any problem. For like, doing the people- drug checking itself for testing substances. Um, it's not yet on the testing of substances. We're actually doing that in collaboration with a charity in the UK next mm-hmm. year. So we're going to be doing that in about 10 festivals in the UK with an organization called Chill Welfare. They're a charity based in Glasgow in Scotland. And so it, the UK is a very different place in terms of attitudes and police attitudes. Their police are actually elected, uh, whereas they're appointed here. Oh, so that wow. means, yeah, it's very, very, it's very strange because you actually have places, including Durham, in the UK where uh, cannabis clubs exist um, mm-hmm. because the police, uh, the police constable, Chief Constable Ron Hogg, who just got re-elected again recently um, mm-hmm. because he just came out and said, I'm not, I'm not wasting my time. And the public love him and they're just voting him back in. <laughs> Whereas you, can't, you can't do that here. You have to really, there's like a, you know, a file an order, you, you take a command or an order and you do it. Um, that's the case in Ireland. So thankfully in the UK, like our experience working in these festivals is that it's the police who are actually calling for drug tech checking because they mm-hmm. don't want problems. They don't want overdoses. They don't want the medics to have to deal. Wow. We should really get some of the law enforcement leaders from Ireland that you're working with to come talk to law enforcement leaders here in the United States. Because I would say for the most part, other than like politicians who are just traditionally law and order or like concerned parents who may be misguided about prohibitionist beliefs. Like law enforcement is definitely our strongest opponents, especially in the realm of drug checking. 
Um, so you mentioned this organization that you've been working with. I assume that this is who you refer to you when you say we, which is Help Not Harm, and that's an organization that you helped co-found yourself. It sounds like you guys have been doing some direct action or direct service type um, programs at these uh, at these festivals as far as the drug checking. Um, are you primarily a direct service organization or are you also focused on um, like public education, uh, policy campaigns? I know that I, I don't think in Ireland you guys have a ballot initiative process like we have in the United States to be able to run like run laws that we can draft ourselves. So it must be more like lobbying where you work collaboratively with legislators legislators right that's correct actually Rochelle yeah so um when we were we were founded about um about I don't know 14 months ago okay and we were basically invited by a guy called Paul Birch he founded the first social media it's called Bebo and it sold to AOL in 2007 for 800 million dollars and Paul um he set, he established a political party in the UK called Cannabis is Safer Than Alcohol and they contested nice. uh, the general election in, in, in the UK. So through uh, the organization Leap UK, uh, Jason Reed, mm-hmm. um, he was looking for just recommendations on different, different um, you know, interested people or, or whatever. And uh, Jason recommended a couple of people in Cork. It was myself and another guy, Sean Lynch, who I've worked many years with. And uh, so we, we went out, we, we were flown out to Barcelona to speak at the the Catalonian parliament and to to go to various uh, clubs and to do like a, as a kind of research trip. And so Paul proposed that we would set up a political party to do kind of, um, you know, to, to, to basically run on a platform for the legalization of cannabis. Um, I actually turned the offer down. Um, I said that, you know, in my opinion, the way we're going to do this is by lobbying parties as a nonprofit where we can have as where we everybody can be your ally rather than being closed off as a as as an opponent to other mm-hmm. political parties who just mm-hmm. won't listen to us and will right. very easily throw mud at us because we're called and focus on coalition nothing. building instead correct exactly i mm-hmm. think that's a really important lesson is that what we learned is that when you work with the establishment when you you know comply and you register and you know as a nonprofit as we did um you do everything by the book and, you know, you have a positive outlook, you make relationships, you, um, instead of, you know, let's say protesting outside people's offices, you just walk in, have a cup of tea, say hello, um, mm-hmm. come across as... The cup of tea is crucial, them. I understand. Well, you know, it's <laughs> the center of all conversation and all musings in Ireland. So uh, <laughs> everything is solved over a cup of tea. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um so yeah, like that's how that's how we approached it. We we said, you know, we'll make a coalition with all these political parties, all the departments, all the educators and policymakers, um, and it served us really, really well. And the name as well, help not harm, as opposed to um, kind of anti-alcohol party. Uh, it just resonates, hard, you know, more with people because you know people like to help, whereas they don't mm-hmm. necessarily want to stop drinking alcohol or they don't necessarily <laughs> want one or the other. They just want to help. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that that approach does make a lot more sense. I mean, I know that the party structure is obviously very different uh, under your different government system, but really, we didn't really get the same kind of traction uh, and progress on on marijuana policy or even on other drug policies until we started getting the Democrats and Republicans to to get on board with it. I mean, the Libertarian Party, our, our largest third party, which is still minuscule in comparison to the biggest two. Uh, but they I mean, they've been preaching this since the at least the 70s, uh, but it didn't get anywhere until we actually brought it to the big two. So that does sound like a, a, a really good approach there. And speaking, I guess, kind of on the, the opposite side of coming together, um, one thing that we did want to talk about, too, is Brexit. Um, so obviously, we've talked about this a bit on the show. It's a little old news now. I mean, it's a few months ago, but um, still in the process of possibly being implemented. I know some people are saying that it's not officially a done deal, but since Brexit or, or because of Brexit, uh, with the UK leaving the European Union, um, there has obviously been some talk about how that could be impacting Ireland, um, specifically a little bit of talk about possibly uh, reunification, which has been, you know, off the table for quite some time. But what impact do you think that would have on drug policy is is either uh, Northern Ireland or the Republic of Ireland more liberal or conservative than the other on, on drug policy or do they essentially line up on those issues and then I, I guess also importantly obviously is just is there any chance of this actually happening or is this a bit more of people talking about California seceding after Trump got elected so I mean Brexit will definitely happen I think actually after the election um, there or the referendum there has been a lot more support for it it's just growing and growing people seem to be oh, wow. uh, more confident about the uk they seem to be they seem to be welcoming the challenge a lot more um i don't know what 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 led to that um mm -hmm. now on the question of whether or not this will negatively or positively affect drug policy um i think it it doesn't really it, it doesn't really matter whether Northern Ireland or Scotland or the UK are more or less liberal than compared to each other, because what this is, is a major distraction. Uh, it's a major distraction that will supersede all other issues for the next two mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. There will be no social justice progress in the UK. There will be no immigration reform. There will be no social justice reform. There will be no drug policy reform because now they're too busy talking about exiting and renegotiating deals with every single European member state. Every single one. They would have to renegotiate mm. every single treaty. There's about there's thousands of treaties in the in the EU. Thousands. Uh, you know, from human rights to trade, to economics, the currency exchange, to banking, to, you know, social justice issues, immigration, education, like grants. Like I mean, where are all the grants? You know, I mean a lot mm. of grants are given by the EU or European institutions, for example, which are funding currently harm reduction organizations, students doing PhDs or masters, um, studying uh, drug policy, charities such as Transform, IDPC, I'm, I don't name them specifically. All in the UK, like these are European institutions funding research and um, policy in the UK. And so we don't know where that money, whether that money is still going to keep coming in exactly. for those organizations. So, yeah. yeah. We have no. We can't predict this. We can't predict this. What we've seen instantaneously overnight since Brexit was a massive uncertainty and a lot of funders uh, thinking, okay, 
maybe I'll give less money here or maybe I'll cut this program altogether. And like, what's the effect on universities? What's the, what's the effect on the standard of education uh, where a lot of universities are, are actually getting EU grants? Like you're automatically, when you're a young person, you're automatically, um, you automatically qualify for a travel grant and an Erasmus grant. So you're, you, you can travel abroad, you can, uh, you can study abroad for free. So now they won't have those. I uh, likely they won't have those grants mm-hmm. available. So for people that are, you know, there's not many people I'm, I'm saying are studying drug policy, but those those people that are those few people that are, it's going to really affect their um, their research. I I think anyway. So the whole effect will be negative. Now you know who knows in two years time when they do get their country um, kind of sorted out again, who knows when this conversation is revived they might be on a different place altogether and they might decide to do medical. I think if Ireland was to legalise medical cannabis before the UK, I think they'd be so mortified that they would have mm-hmm. to follow. So mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a positive for them. That's the, the biggest positive is going to be, is going to be the, um, the consequence if Ireland does it first. Um, not that it's a competition, but we do like to get one up on the UK every now and then. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of our discussion. Thank you so much, Graham, for giving us an overview of all of these things going on in Ireland right now. We do always wrap up our discussions with a call to action since educating people is pretty useless if we're not also using that knowledge to improve our communities and make the world a better place. So Graham, if you could have listeners do something, one action right right now, what would you ask them to do? Well, if your listeners could do one thing to help the bill that's going through Parliament at the moment, it would be to go on Twitter and social media and just say, I support this bill or share any of our statuses um, on Twitter and just use the hashtag MedCanIreland. So that's hashtag MedCanIreland. You can follow the discussion, the debates, the commentary uh, and become involved virtually because this is a global war on drugs. This is, you know, reform that's needed worldwide. You guys have really pioneered the whole medical cannabis discussion by having a majority now of American states supporting it. So keeping that horizon and that perspective uh, broadened to the rest of the world. Uh, give back some advice, maybe. Uh, what did you do right? What did you do wrong? Um, what's good about medical cannabis? What works? And hashtag MedCanIreland. We would really appreciate your support. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us today. Again, this has been Graham DeBarra with Help Not Harm in Ireland. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to episode 71 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Sam Tracy and Rochelle Young. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and Sarah Merrigan is our engagement director. We'd also like to thank Graham DeBarra once again for joining us for our roundtable discussion. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including links to our guests, news stories, and forecasts. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and like what you hear, please give us a rating and write a quick review. It'll help us get to the top of the charts so other people can find us and start listening and learning too. Finally, This Week in Drugs is an all-volunteer project. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support our work, please check out our Patreon page, which is linked to on our website. This allows you to commit a small monthly donation to help defray the cost of our web hosting fees. That's all for episode 71 of This Week in Drugs. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next week.
our outro song this week is Higher End of Empty by New Neighbors. One more week it'll all be over And I believe Not a day of that spent sober You saw right through me Streetlights cutting through the fog Thick with doubt and questions we pushed off No doubt that you were such a good friend But you always overthink There's no use sitting on what happened I smiled and watched you sink Farther down into my arms Thinking of where we've been And how we've come so far Laying here is more than fun She's not just some new someone Who I picked up to ease my tired Just to do nothing And everything seems fine Reading back all of my thoughts They seem so crazy How could I have Tired mind. 
Taking crooked lines